On the Table, Current and Critical Information for Massage Therapists in Practice, a podcast presented by Massage Therapy Canada. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Our subject today, we connect with our clients physiologically, yet our touch is interpreted psychologically. Talking Body, Listening Hands, a guide to massage therapeutic relationship, prompts a discussion of communication and ethical challenges associated with massage therapy practice. In this podcast, we explore professional responsibilities, communication skills, and interpersonal challenges that massage therapists face day to day. How does the Code of Ethics frame scope of practice in assisting the practitioner in complicated decision-making? How do we build a working alliance with clients? What is a touch-triggered response? How can we effectively set boundaries? This and more as we consider all that happens in the therapeutic encounter. As always, today my co-host is Don Dillon. Don is a massage therapist, author of dozens of articles in the field, and practice coach. Welcome back, Don. Thanks, Janet. It's great to be back in the seat with you today. And I'm very happy today that our guest is a longtime friend of mine. And I, I think the topic we're going to be discussing will be essential listening for our audience. Uh, our guest today is Pam Fitch. Uh, for more than 30 years, Canadian massage therapy educator Pam Fitch, uh, also a writer, researcher, and longtime practitioner, has explored professional, ethical, and communicative challenges faced by manual therapists. She remains particularly interested in how massage therapy affects clients who have experienced trauma, post-traumatic stress, and complex pain conditions. A committed educator, she has been recognized with several awards for teaching. Pam, it's great to have you on On the Table. Hi, Don. It's very, very nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So, Pam, we're just going to kick things off here. Uh, so, you identify that the combined words massage therapy may each evoke different contexts. So, massage implicates hands kneading flesh and moving limbs, a way of comforting, soothing, and connecting whereas the word therapy describes a process of interpersonal engagement, imposes professional responsibilities that a client's best interests will be served. Can you say more a little bit about the tension between these two words? I sure can. When I landed on this as a, a, a conundrum for a therapist, I realized that it has to do with professional identity. If a practitioner is identified with what their hands achieve, they may believe that what they do is massage. But in fact, anybody who acknowledges that there is a trust relationship with the person on the table, well, then they start to realize that they have a responsibility for care, a duty of care for that individual. And once you start to realize that you have a responsibility in making sure that you do no harm, now you're talking therapy. So massage is the hands-on manual therapy, manual touch contact that we have. And, you know, massage has been done for thousands of years. It, it was one of the first ways that people sought care for pain. So it, it's not a protected title to do massage. But if you're doing massage therapy, the implications for professional behavior 
become much clearer. You are responsible to do no harm. And when touches the medium, that becomes enormously important. So you do mention throughout uh, the book here that massage therapists connect with clients physiologically, yet the touch is interpreted psychologically. So in what ways? Can you explain that a little bit further? For sure. If you think about um, your experience when someone touches you, I'll just give you an example to begin with and then I'll explain. Um, If you think about how you feel when someone touches you, your immediate response, my immediate response is, did I like it? Did I not like it? Is that person somebody I can trust? Am I safe in this environment? These are all kind of somatic responses with a psychological uh, interpretation. So when a massage therapist is, is working on a client, the client may be asking the same questions. Can I trust this therapist? Ooh, I've never had anybody touch me in that particular part of my back before. I don't do very well. Ooh, am I going to feel judged? These are all kind of psychological overlays of a somatic reality of being touched. And yet, in massage therapy education, we focus on is the person, does the person have full range of motion? Are they flexible or are they inflexible? Are they in pain? And we're looking immediately through the lens, the physiological lens, lens and the physical lens. What is really essential is that we make sure that when we're teaching our students and when massage therapists are practicing, that they're actually opening their eyes wide to recognize how they're coming across to that client. Because the client is going to interpret the therapist's behaviors very differently than the therapist will interpret the physiological changes that they're perceiving with their hands. So, I mean, that trust component is very important to kind of to start things off, I think. And it's the hardest thing, I'm speaking again from my own experience, it's the hardest thing to impart as a value for students. And it's very challenging for massage therapists to wrap their heads around because many people come into our profession because they like using their hands. Maybe they're a little bit shy. They think, oh, I like to help people, but I don't like to talk very much. But the reality is we have a trust relationship with our clients that demands that we communicate well, that we pay attention, that we focus on them so that we do no harm. And that's where we can fall down if we are focused only on what our hands are doing. Pam, I appreciate in your book, Talking Body, Listening Hands, how you differentiate between the scope of practice and the code of ethics, two documents provided to us in Ontario by the regulatory body. And you mentioned how the latter, the code of ethics, helps a practitioner in making complicated decisions with uh, ethical consideration. Can you tell us more about this? Well, I, I, I go back just to review and say that a scope of practice is a legal definition. Usually it's, it's written by lawyers to determine what the boundary is, the, the, to, to contain the acts that an individual can achieve, making sure that we assess and treat clients orthopedically is, is very clear in our 
scope of practice in Ontario, uh, it's more implicit and less clear is the fact that we are assessing and treating people who are in pain. And what's fascinating about the scope of practice is that there's no mention of individual people in that. We're, uh, our scope of practice is only saying what we can treat, so what conditions we can treat. And in the literature, it becomes very clear that uh, if we're encountering individuals, uh, human beings have all kinds of complications. We are complicated individuals with all kinds of heartache and all kinds of personal shame and all kinds of uh, a package of, of psychological realities that if I'm going to touch somebody, I better respect those realities. So the scope of practice only describes the conditions that we can treat. So it is fairly limited. The code of ethics, on the other hand, is a statement of values and principles that the whole profession adhere to. Now, when you come into the profession, the code of ethics is already set. So these are sets of principles that massage therapists over the course of decades have determined our professional values that we want to embody. And for example, uh, respecting an individual, culturally, sexual identity, language, uh, their personal sense of what's comfortable. We need to respect a person's ability to uh, manage, and they don't always have the capacity to express their needs. So our job in that case is to use the code of ethics to remind us that we need to respect whatever they need. Uh, responsible caring means we need to take care of them in a way that we don't go outside of our scope, we don't go beyond what we can actually do with the skills that we have. And if we don't know what we're doing, we're going to refer that person out. Uh, integrity in relationships, the brilliance of this part of our code of ethics is it's relating to not only our clients, but also the relationship to ourselves. We have to make sure that in some ways, we put ourselves first and we don't compromise our own capacities or else we can burn out. And then finally, uh, accountability to society. We need to be accountable and not go beyond the norms of our society to meet the requirements that are uh, acceptable for any professional. Now, that's an example of a code of ethics statement of values. How we make decisions is that the reality is we get faced with all kinds of gray zones, all kinds of situations that there's no clear decision that can be made. In my own practice, for example, um, early into my practice, maybe three weeks into my practice, I had a client come in to see me who couldn't be touched, but she wanted massage. <laughs> okay. I had no preparation for that conundrum. I didn't know how to respond to her. She was quite sure she wanted massage, but she had no comfort with being touched. She had no trust for anybody to touch her. So the entire time that we spent our work together, it was an explicit conversation about where on her body she could receive touch, for how long, what pressure. And she got to choose all these things. And what I realized years later was that by asking those questions, by respecting her needs and letting my code of ethics answer 
my question, what do I do now? I was able to provide her care within the scope of practice. She had complex needs, complex pain. I stayed within my scope, but I was able to respect her enough. And it was the code of ethics that really helped define for me what my approach was. So that's that's just an example of how the code of ethics can help you navigate the choppy waters when you have really challenging uh, ethical issues. Pam, I just did want to, um, that kind of highlights what you had uh, said to me when we had first spoken, uh, I believe it was last year, we had discussed uh, in the fall 2018 edition of Massage Therapy Canada, how to handle inappropriate behavior from clients. And one of the first essential skills you mentioned that many students need to learn was communication. And you were careful to point out that's what therapists need to continue to practice. Well, what stuns me as an educator in massage therapy, and I've been doing this for a long time now, is that we do a really, I think, our profession does a very good job of connecting the dots between anatomy, physiology, and even pathology, so that when our students graduate, they know how the body works. In some ways, I have had physicians say, I want a massage therapist to palpate something because they have better palpation skills than many docs. So there are lots that we do very well. But if we don't learn how to communicate, if we don't learn how to ask good questions, or pay attention to the to the the tells that we're getting from our client as to whether or not they're comfortable, then we are putting that client at risk, frankly, because if the client is not comfortable and they're sort of giving us facial expressions that show that and we ignore that and we continue on, that's not good. We are actually at risk of harming the patient. Communication is going to form the foundation of establishing that trust relationship. Because the trust relationship is the, at, at the core of what we do. You can't touch anybody unless they're prepared for you to touch them. And we know that from, from, the, from the explosion of news reports around the Me Too movement. We realized that for decades, for a long, long time, people have been touched in ways that was not comfortable for them and they weren't able to speak up and that has got to change. So in a profession where touch is a medium, my goodness, this is at the core of what we should be teaching is good communication skills and constantly reviewing and establish establishing and reviewing informed consent. Thanks, Pam. And and what I appreciate too is your book later on goes into an actual framework to deal with those difficult ethical situations that therapists may be faced with and really didn't receive instruction or training in how to deal with them. And what I've noticed in social media postings, a lot of postings seem to be related to these ethical dilemmas and how do they handle them. Everything from billing and and if a a client doesn't show up and pay their bill to somebody's trying to become uh, a friend. So you're, you're, I think you, you, what you do pragmatically is provide a framework for what happens when I face a situation, I'm aware of my scope of practice, but I don't know how to deal with this particular situation. You provide a framework to help a therapist work through the process and, and to figure out how to best respond. Yeah, that's right. And, and fundamentally, uh, it comes down to some really basic 
communication skills that any profession that encounters the public learns how to do. Journalists, lawyers, doctors, nurses, they may not learn them explicitly, but they should. Uh, anybody who's doing interviewing needs to know how to make it, how to apply an open question versus a closed question. For example, if somebody is trying to get an idea of why a client has, has come in to uh, receive massage therapy, starting with closed questions is not going to invite responses that are um, reflective or open the door for conversations. So initially, it's really important to ask open-ended questions. Why are you here? How can I help? What's going on? And gradually, as a picture emerges, then the, the therapist can focus down into the closed questions. Now, we teach that theoretically in our programs. Most programs are teaching that now. But practicing it in the clinical environment and then recognizing once you're in practice that, oh, that thing, that thing that Pam used to hammer me over the head with is actually very useful. It's just about as useful as determining range of motion. That's that it, it, it becomes a question of whether the therapist values communication as an assessment tool. I really firmly believe that communication is an assessment tool. Uh, listening, actively listening and paying attention to the responses that I get, clarifying any assumptions that I might have, uh, watching for any indicators of anxiety or sensitivity, or even just changes in facial expression, and then asking about it. But you know, Don, one of the things that is a key teaching point for my own students, and I think it's a way of framing our experience that might be useful to massage therapists, is that we are participant observers in the massage treatment room. And what I mean by that is this is a participant observer is a term that's used a lot in sociological research and anthropological research. And what they mean is you're in an environment with people, you're sharing the experience, but at the same time, you're observing, making notes to yourself about what you're seeing and adjusting your response to that. So that participant observer stance when it's honed, becomes a key skill for a massage therapist. I sometimes think that we, a lot of us do it quite well. We just don't know that there's a name for it. And if we did, it might make it more easy for us to deliberately pay attention in that way. Let's switch gears and talk about informed consent. You mentioned informed consent is a cornerstone to client-centered care. And you talk about a practitioner forming a working alliance with the client. Can you elaborate more on that? Sure. The term working alliance comes from the psychological uh, psychotherapeutic literature. I should reiterate that I was not able to do primary research for this book. What I did was reviewed a lot of the psychotherapeutic literature because According to some research, including Christopher Moyer's meta-analysis of massage therapy from years back, there is uh, ample evidence to suggest that we are actually more like psychotherapists in our work than we are physiotherapists. 
So I looked at the psychotherapeutic literature to inform me about the therapeutic relationship and how we need to communicate. And when it comes to informed consent, we absolutely need to ask permission before we begin anything. And we cannot make assumptions about the client comfort. Days are gone when, because we are in a position of authority, we can be trusted to do something without verifying that it's okay with the client. Informed consent is, let me be clear, informed consent means ensuring that the client knows exactly what is about to happen, that all questions have been asked and answered prior to the massage therapy beginning or whatever the therapeutic modality is. Now, every healthcare professional is having to tune up their skills in informed consent because most healthcare professionals have done a fairly poor job of establishing consent prior to engaging in care. I'm reminded of a surgical situation that I witnessed a few years ago with a client where I was sitting with the client who was quite nervous about this surgery just prior to going in. And at the point just prior to going into surgery, a nurse came and established informed consent. And I thought, wouldn't you have done this before, before, before? It it took a long time um, for her to ensure that the client understood what was happening. But it surprised me that they were asking these questions minutes before the surgery. I would have thought those questions had been asked ahead of time. Goosebumps right now, you mentioning that. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it was it was really startling to me that the person was going through all the steps of informed consent, and I'm sitting there thinking, "Are you kidding me? This person is has got the line ready to go in for the for the um, anesthetic, and they're doing informed consent." Now, it's entirely possible I was not witness to a previous conversation like that. But it was startling to me that informed consent is so essential, it needs to be fully discussed. And the person has to have an opportunity to ask all their questions. This individual was basically asked by the nurse in that circumstance, do you have any questions? It's like two minutes from surgery. <laughs> so informed consent requires time. It requires an opportunity for the client to actually think through what is being proposed. This is why, if I can just jump in here, uh, when breast massage is offered, which is part of the scope of practice for massage therapists and taught widely in Ontario, it's, it's not okay to offer breast massage when the client's lying supine on the table and you're about ready to undrape the chest. They need an opportunity to think through how they're feeling about this, the breast being an intimate part of the body and breast massage not being essential care. Most of what we do, this is an important point, most of what we do as massage therapists is not essential care. We, what's essential is maintaining uh, hygienic practices and universal precautions so that we don't infect our clients. But fundamentally, if somebody doesn't get a massage, eh, they might be more tense. They might have poor sleep, they might feel some pain, but their life is not going to change. So what we do is not essential. It's really good, but it's not essential. 
So all the more reason for us to ensure that informed consent has been well established and that the client's on board with what we do. And in fact, this is the big protection for therapists who are concerned about clients making complaints about them. If you have established informed consent and you keep checking in with somebody and then you document it, the therapist is protected and the client is safe. So that's my big pitch on informed consent. <laughs> so jumping off of that um, with uh, regards to questions asked and answered. So you mentioned in your clients rarely specify precisely what they want from massage therapy because they generally do not want to be perceived as whining or complaining. Um, I'm the complete opposite of this. The first thing I do when I go see my massage therapist is I whine and complain. Um, but perhaps that's because I'm in the industry. So how can an RMT effectively observe pain response and interpret effect? Right. Uh, just for clarification, I think uh, many of us like to whine and complain. And it's really comfort comforting to go into a massage therapy clinic where the therapist says, how are you? How are you really? And they listen. It's a, it's, it's a great drug, frankly, to be validated and listened to and comforted. And people will do that. But what I was talking about when I said that um, was uh, once clients are on the table, if they're uncomfortable, they won't necessarily tell you. So you might have a great conversation when the client is dressed and sitting up with you and, and you're chatting through the course of the treatment. But once the client's between the sheets, lying prone or supine on the massage table, think about this. How often do massage clients say, oh, this, this pillow is really not comfortable. I have had a few Princess and the Pea clients who acknowledge that nothing is comfortable and we have to you know, uh, work through positioning and that sort of thing to make sure that they're okay to receive treatment. But for the most part, clients will put up with things that are not comfortable and then they go away and they think, ah, I don't like that therapist. That therapist is not good. I'm not going back. So it's even, I know, Don, you have a, a great capacity for looking at business uh, issues in massage therapy. I actually think it's a marketing tool to ask clients consistently how comfortable they are and adjust our skills to that because if we demonstrate that we are working and the client's behalf, we have their best interests at heart, we don't want to do anything that harms them, that supports a trust relationship. And the more they become uh, trusting of their therapist, the more likely they are to identify us as their therapist. So it's not only an ethical choice, it's a business decision. We need to be good therapists and make sure that our clients are happy with their experience. So the pain response, when, when clients are not saying anything, what you might notice is there's a little bit of rigidity in their spine, for example, if they're holding on, if, if the pressure is too, too strong, they may be thinking that they have to suck it up and be strong and just put up with pain. Um, years ago, we might have said no pain, no gain, but it's very clear in the pain literature that that's actually not very helpful. 
in the delivery of massage therapy. If we work with the body's responses, if we don't get engaged in a power struggle with a client's pain responses, it's more effective than if we put them through hell. So what we're looking for are uh, holding the breath, a little bit of a pull away, jump signs. We need to acknowledge these things and make sure that the client is still comfortable with what we're doing. Because if we're putting them through really painful experiences, I frankly don't think they want to go to want to come back. And so can you touch touch on what um, a touch-triggered <laughs> response is? Yeah, a touch-triggered response is a term that we use in massage therapy. Um, is actually a somatic response where the brain is involved and the brain is reminded of a painful experience. So if, if someone has a touch-triggered response, it may be as a result of some trauma that they've experienced or a car accident or some, some injury. It may be a personal assault. There may be something associated with the with the touch that is has a psychological overlay. And if they have a touch-triggered response, their brain is being reminded of the whatever that assault, trauma, uh, accident, or injury was. Now, what happens with touch-triggered responses, and the reason why we want to avoid them, is that the way the body works, our brains create, they wear a pathway with certain responses. So if we keep reminding somebody of how pain occurred in an event, and we remind them over and over again, then they get this lovely pathway like you would get if you were hiking in the hills and the grass is all worn down and you're down to bare dirt. You know exactly where the pathway is and you stay on the path. What massage therapy this is a theory on my part. I don't have this in uh, uh, evidence, but what I'm making sense of in terms of the neuroplasticity literature is that what massage therapy can do is teach clients backdoor way of receiving touch, receiving manual therapy in a way that doesn't set off the alarm bells, doesn't create a touch-triggered response. And when we do that, the client has a new pathway, which is not scary. And they can learn to accept manual therapy and touch, receive touch in a way that is not threatening. So it's a, it's a very powerful modality. But that piece of it, to my knowledge, has not been adequately researched. I think that's a uh, really a valuable topic for study, but uh, what I've shared is more theoretical. Pam, in your book, you provide us with a number of examples of practitioner inappropriateness or a distortion in their communication method. Can you tell us how practitioners sometimes miss the point of client-centered care? Well, client-centered care is putting your client at the center of all your decision-making. So when you ignore that principle and you don't do it, then you can create some distortions in communication that really undermine the trust relationship between the therapist and the client. <laughs> I'm reminded of a, a therapist, I, a, a client reported to me that a therapist 
actually set a timer for the hour, a tick, 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 tick kind of timer, uh, when the, the therapy started and the, and the, and the client was a musician, so she was very sensitive to the, the tick, 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 and she kept thinking, oh, when is it going to stop? When's the bell going to ring? That, that, that really undermined the uh, opportunity for that client to relax because all she could think about was, uh, when's it going to finish? So that was an a, a insensitivity on the part of the therapist. Another habit that people get into that can cause problems is something that the literature calls pseudo-listening. So uh, some of us might be familiar with this when we're uh, checking our emails or looking at Facebook and our partner is talking to us and we say, uh-huh, uh-huh, in the sweetest way possible, we have not recorded what they have said. And that obviously comes out of the subsequent conversation when we are accused of not listening. That's pseudo-listening. So when we're listening to our clients and we're also checking the calendar to see when they're coming next, there's a form of pseudo-listening. And if the client has actually just told you that they fell downstairs and you didn't record that, you're going to miss something really, really important. So pseudo-listening is, is a, a real bugaboo for me. Two others that really uh, are red flags for me is one is making assumptions, making assumptions that a client is comfortable at all times. The big no-no, big assumption that we have all done at times, and it has come back to haunt me on occasion as a practitioner. The other piece is discounting. So not paying attention to something that a client may quietly share with you or believing that what they have shared is not that important. We can miss really essential information about a client's condition and their health history if we don't pay attention to everything they're saying. So, so an example might be a client comes in to see me and they tell me that they're really tired. Oh, can you say more about that, I might say. So the client begins to tell me a story and I either am thinking about getting them on the table, looking at my watch, I'm not paying attention, and then they actually acknowledge that they're in treatment for cancer and I miss it. That is a way of pseudo-listening and then if I discount their concerns about being tired, I've missed the point of why they're there entirely. So all of these things play on top of one another. One of the other really bad things that people do sometimes is they get sarcastic or they tease their clients. And, and I'm fully guilty of this in the day because my clients and I love to laugh and I do tease them. But sometimes I know that I have not been as sensitive as I could be and I might have actually taken things too far and made them feel like they had to be stoic and accept painful treatments when really I should have backed off. So, I mean, we're all guilty of these things, but those are some examples of how massage therapists can be inappropriate or make the communication quite challenging. Well, thank you. And I, I appreciate that example of the, uh, of the timer in the treatment room. It sounds like the client was objectified as a boiled egg and uh, the timer let us know when they were done. <laughs> In your book, you, you, and I'm quoting you here, boundary settings inform clients 
of the rules of engagement. Can you tell yeah. us some situations where we may need to redefine boundaries and what steps we can take to secure them? Rules of, of engagement. This is a term that comes from military language because the rules of engagement are how two parties meet each other. So when political figures meet internationally, there's a long conversation that happens ahead of the meeting to determine what are the rules of engagement? What will we allow and what will we not allow? So boundary formation is influenced by all the things that uh, an individual brings into the treatment room, both therapist and client, you know, family history, comfort with uh, body image, culture, religion, all of those things. So establishing the rules of engagement are a way of creating a container for experience for the client. Um, what the therapist may be comfortable with may not be what the client is comfortable with. So it's really essential to establish what are the rules that we're going to abide by, let's be explicit about them, and what can I do to help in this in the time that we have and maybe subsequent. Um, that, that's a way of modeling for our clients that we're establishing boundaries. For, for example, if a, a client comes in and uh, they want an hour's treatment, but they've arrived half an hour late, it becomes essential for the therapist to explain in the kindest way possible that the therapeutic hour is the therapeutic hour. This is especially true if they have another client waiting. Maybe the therapist would, would be willing to go a little bit later to accommodate this client's lateness. But boundary setting is all about saying, this is what I do. This is how I do it. And these are the consequences when things happen that don't match the boundary. We don't have to be defensive. We don't have to be angry. But we do have to actually be clear about what we can accept and, and how far we can go in any one encounter. So if you maybe could give us a few examples of where a therapist might find themselves knee-deep in a boundary going sideways and needing to redefine that and reestablish that. Can you give us an example or two? Sure. One of the, the major challenges that massage therapists encounter, in my experience, are dual relationships. And dual relationships happen when we have two reasons for um, encountering an individual. Say, for example, my mother would like me to give her a massage. And she paid for my schooling, and now I'm a massage therapist, and now she wants payback. She wants regular massage. Well, the fact is, she's always going to be my mother. My responses to her will always be like a daughter. She's my mom. So I may not be able to assert the boundary of, I can't be objective in this circumstance as easily because I'm her daughter. So dual relationships compromise therapists' objectivity. And they make it really challenging for us to make good therapeutic decisions. That's, that's one of the principal ways that therapists can get um, stuck. Uh, another way is when they become attracted to clients. 
and a common, common way that clients will show that they trust us is they engage in something called transference. And transference is a, is a term that was developed by Freud many, many years ago to describe how a client or a patient in a trust relationship with a health professional feels warm feelings of association with that individual, but they don't actually know the practitioner. They just know that they have warm feelings towards them. So when their transference emerges, it may emerge like they're in love with their therapist. It may emerge that they really hate their therapist because they're associating really uh, uh, projected feelings from another relationship. But transference, for the most part, shows up when clients are in love with their therapist. So if a therapist engages that transference further, tell me more. Ooh, I didn't know you liked me this way. Uh, then they can really, really challenge the boundaries that need to be set to establish safety for that client. And they can move into a situation where there's what I call boundarylessness. There's no, we're in a frontier that's, it's the Wild West and there are no rules. At that point, when there are no rules in the therapy, uh, therapeutic encounter, clients are at risk. And my big belief, and the reason I wrote this book, is that we need to know explicitly as massage therapists what puts our clients at risk. Dual relationships are challenging. They're not illegal, they're not wrong, but they're very challenging. Transference, when we engage in it, it can lead to abusive situations, so it's really potentially problematic. So those are two examples of some significant boundary violations. So Don had touched um, on this topic a bit in his uh, article in the summer 2018 edition of Massage Therapy Canada. Um, but what are specific challenges facing male massage therapists? Um, we did have uh, Murray Allen here quoted saying, uh, he admits male practitioners may be particularly vulnerable to miscommunication and uh, charges of misconduct or incompetence. Um, and I'm going to add, how do we effectively teach clients their boundaries? So I statements, I, you, we, and the application. I, I firmly believe that massage therapy uh, practitioners who are male have a, a layer of challenge that uh, straight female therapists cannot fully appreciate. Because stereotypically, people come to massage therapists because they want nurturing and good touch and they want to feel comfortable, and we associate the relationship, consciously or unconsciously, it's like a caregiver and child relationship. The person is lying without clothes on a table. They're vulnerable, but they're also, it's a reminiscence of infancy or early childhood. So the stereotypical caregiver would be mom. And if somebody's had a great relationship with mom, then it's going to be straightforward, especially if the therapist is female. If the therapist is male and shows good signs of nurturance, the, the client may become confused because of the sexualization of our culture in the media, because of the way men are perceived 
males have a very, very challenging time of it to communicate their intentions honorably. It's possible. Uh, Don, you're a prime example of this. You're so clear in, in your intention. So my encountering of you is that you probably do this, you know, uh, unconsciously and, and, uh, all the time. But male therapists have a real challenge with this. Again, it's a stereotype, but we don't associate clear communication and nurturance with men. The, the stereotype is that men don't talk about their feelings and they certainly don't express their feelings. And so for male therapists who come into the massage therapy profession, we're expecting them not only to communicate and be able to talk about what's going on, recognize what's going on, but they also have to recognize what's going on in the client. And, and this is kind of against type. So if you're, if you're a writer or if you're in drama, you're talking about being against type. That's, that's working against the stereotype. So if you, if you will, massage therapists in, in our profession who are male are kind of working against type. Now, is it possible? Absolutely it is. Deliberate, conscious, informed consent, ongoing, check-ins, and ways for you to make sure that that client is comfortable and then explicitly telling them that you're going to document this and put it in their file. This all underscores the idea that they are having, they're encountering healthcare. If there's any kind of confusion, if a male therapist is, loves to joke around, and make kind of strange remarks. In massage classes, as an educator, I hear about those students because the female student therapists aren't comfortable working with those individuals. So what we find and what we found in our program is that males who are not particularly attuned to affect in another person, they don't have any sense of how they come across to another person, they are vulnerable to offend and, in fact, to harm their clients. So massage therapy is not for the faint of heart. If you're male, you've got to step up and be very, very careful about how you communicate, how you make jokes, where you touch, do you have permission to, to touch. It's, it's hard. It's hard being a male therapist. So Pam, in your uh, in your book, and I'm quoting from you, massage therapy represents a transaction where therapists listen, attend, nurture, assess, touch, and treat. Clients talk, rest, sleep, and receive. The encounter is reminiscent of personal relationships and early childhood experiences. Can you explain this more for us? When clients lie on the table, they are vulnerable. They are there to receive from us. And our job is to be on and to pay attention and to watch, um, to respond, to ask questions about our assumptions. So the transaction is this. If I am providing you care 
and you're paying me, then the contract is that I will listen, I will pay attention, I will watch, I will make sure that you're safe, I will not harm you. That's the, the thing that is rarely spoken. I will not harm you. And it's my commitment to you. And then you can receive that from me. Because what's important is for people to understand that this is a transaction. And interaction is what happens between friends. So if my friend feels like I didn't really appreciate what she said, she might say, you were kind of, you didn't listen to me. And she might be mad. But hopefully that's not going to completely ruin the relationship. It's recoverable because we're on an equal footing. But in massage therapy, the therapist is in a position of power. So the transaction is uh, the client gives me money. It pays me to be on guard and aware and to make sure that that client's safe. That's, that transaction is fundamental and the concept of transaction is fundamental to what we do. What we do is not casual, it's not an interaction, although we might talk about, I don't know, the, the fall fair, we might talk about that, but fundamentally my responsibility as a massage therapist never goes away. And that's what it means to be the massage therapy professional. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Pam. This has been an incredibly enlightening uh, conversation. And uh, we do have a, mul a multitude of other questions to ask you, um, in which part we hope to do uh, a part two, which will be premiering uh, within 2020 here. So thank you again, Pam. Oh, perfect. It's my pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks again, Don, for joining us. Always a pleasure, Janet, and thanks, Pam. On the Table, Current and Critical Information for Massage Therapists in Practice, a podcast presented by Massage Therapy Canada. Mm -hmm.